Isaiah 57, 14 through 21. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for from me proceeds the spirit, and I have made the breath of life. Because of the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry. I smote him, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and requit him with comfort, creating for his mourners the fruit of the lips, peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot rest, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I'd like us to see this text against its preceding context. If you would like to look at it with me, you can turn back to chapter 56, verse 9, where a longer section begins in which the prophet describes the corruption of this people Israel. In verses 9 through 12, for example, in chapter 56, there's this awful description of the leadership in Israel and how they have gone bad and failed to care for the people. Take verse 11 as an example. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. The shepherds also have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. So the leaders of the people are all after their own gain, and it's a mess. And then in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 57, what you get is a description of a people who have bad leaders. When the leaders go bad, the people go bad. For example, verses 1 and 2, the righteous perish and are taken away. Verses 3 and 4, adultery and sorcery and cruelty abound. And then verses 5, the first half of verse 5, there are these sexual fertility rites taken over from the Canaanite religions. And the second half of verse 5, there's child sacrifice. Probably Isaiah lived during the time of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, who actually offered up his own son to Moloch, the idol, and engaged in Zeus saying and mediums and wizards. Sounds like Minnesota. Verses 6 through 13, then, are a long description of idolatry. So that's what the people of Israel were offering up to Almighty God who had been so gracious to them from the days of Abraham and Moses and David. Just a long series of idolatry and sin. But at the end of that long description of the condition of the leaders and the people, you get this little glimmer of hope in verse 13 before our text begins and it says but he who takes refuge in me shall 
possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. In other words, in the midst of a corrupt people, there are individuals who lay hold on God, take refuge in him, and are spared judgment. But now comes a large text of encouragement. Verses 14 to uh, 19 at least, it ends with a warning about the wicked, but for the most part this text is a great encouragement to us and to the people of Israel. And what I'd like to do with it is take it just a verse at a time and walk through you or through it with you. And then as we get to the end, go back and zero in on one beautiful truth within it and uh, end by meditating on that truth. So let's go a verse at a time here, starting with verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. This is God's way of saying there's going to be a great turning. There's going to be a great uh, coming home of my people. Get everything out of the way. Make room for my people to return. Remove boulders, as it were. Take the trees out of the road. Fill up the gullies. Get ready for my people. I think this is more than a few individuals in verse 13 taking refuge in God. This is a people movement. Something great is in the offing here for the whole people. Remove the obstacles for my people. They are coming home. Okay? Now, in verse 15, there's a reason given for why there can be this grand hope for this rebellious people. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. So the hope of verse 14 for a great people movement back to God is that God, though he is unapproachable and high and holy, nevertheless condescends to dwell with the crushed and humble in spirit. And when he dwells with them, it says he revives them. He gives them life forever and ever. There's hope. And then verse 16 gives another way of stating the same hope. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For from me proceeds the Spirit, or more literally, the Spirit would grow faint before me, and I have made the breath of life. In other words, the second reason why they can have this hope that there will be a great returning to God and that he will receive them is that he does not intend to go on remaining angry. He created Israel for his glory. He knows the limitations of Israel's spirit. He will not pursue them to utter destruction. His case against them. When it says he will not contend against them, that's a legal metaphor for holding out a case against them. The case against them he will not pursue to total condemnation. It isn't that he's going to drop charges like they did in Scott County. He's not, he never drops charges. But he finds a way to acquit the guilty without dropping charges. And we'll see how before we're done. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry. I smote him, says the Lord. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Now, after all that good news, this seems to be bad news again. And yet, 
It's sandwiched by good news. And I think the reason it's here is because it makes the good news even better. God does not look upon his people with the least bit of naivete. He doesn't look upon Israel with rose-colored glasses. They are rotten. It's a terrible thing. It's an appalling thing. When you're going in the wrong way, God smacks you to the ground to stop you. You get up and keep right on going in the way you were going. And that's exactly what they're doing. No matter how he warns, no matter how he punishes, they go on in their wicked way. And that makes verse 18 all the more amazing. I have seen his ways, but I will heal. I will lead him and requite him with comfort, creating for his mourners the fruit of lips. In spite of the seriousness of the disease, in verse 17, of rebellion and willfulness, God says he will heal. Now, how will he heal? What will healing be? Well, in verse 15, notice that God is going to dwell with a crushed and a humble people. But verse 17 says they're not crushed and humble. They are brazenly pursuing their own proud way. So what will a healing be? It can only be one thing. God will heal them by humbling them. He will cure them by crushing them their pride in other words if only crushed and humble people have the healing benefit of God's presence and if Israel's sickness is a proud and willful rebellion as verse 17 says and if God promises to heal as it says in verse 18 then the only possibility is that the healing will be a humbling and the cure will be a crushing of pride. Isn't this Isaiah's way of predicting what Jeremiah called the new covenant and Ezekiel called the new heart? You remember what those two prophets said? Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel says the same thing but with different words when he says, A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and I will put in the heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I think Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all see a great day of salvation coming. A day in which this sick Israel with its hard heart is going to be supernaturally changed and saved. Isaiah speaks of healing here in verse 18. Jeremiah speaks of writing the law on the heart. Ezekiel speaks of giving them a new heart. But the salvation in view of all of them is the same. So the healing in Isaiah 57, 18 is a heart transplant, a major one. The old, hardened, proud, willful heart is taken out and a new, soft, tender heart that's easily crushed, easily easily humbled is put in, the kind with which the Holy One will dwell. And then comes this beautiful promise in verse 19. Peace, peace, 
to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The fruit of the lips that God creates is a song of peace. And the most beautiful word for us Gentiles in this passage is the word far. Peace to the far. You see, this text is written to Israel and it has its primary application for the Jews. I really believe that this text will have its literal fulfillment in Israel as the New Testament in Romans 11, I believe, teaches that one day God will work mightily to give a new heart to his people Israel And that there will be a banishing of ungodliness from Jacob when the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And they will bow and accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And they will join the church. And there will be one magnificent people of God forever and ever. And so the question rises, where are we Gentiles in this text? Can we read this text with a sense of joy that it belongs to us as well as to Israel someday? Indeed we can because of this word far and what the New Testament does with it. Peace to those who are far. This prophecy is taken up by Paul in Ephesians 2.17 where he says, And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. So you Gentiles are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the fulfillment of all Jeremiah's new covenant and all of Ezekiel's new heart and of all of Isaiah's healing is Jesus Christ. You can just walk right through our text and see how Jesus fulfills it. Verse 14, it's Jesus who opens the way for the people to return. Verse 15, it's Jesus in in whom God the lofty one is going to come and dwell with crushed and broken people. Verse 16, it's Jesus whose death enables God to acquit guilty people and cease to contend with them without dropping the charges because he bears the guilt of those charges. In verse 18, it is by Jesus' stripes that we are healed. And in verse 19, Jesus is our peace. So Christ is the grand fulfillment of all that's promised in this text. And since we are in Christ by faith, it's ours. Those who were far have been made near in Jesus Christ and heirs according to the promise. We can read this passage, and I hope you do, with tremendous joy and hope and satisfaction that it's ours as well as Israel's. Now I want us to zero in on what I regard as as the most beautiful truth in this whole passage If you were to ask the question, what's the best thing about being healed by God in verse 18? And I think the answer is verse 15. The best thing about being healed by God is that he will come as a lofty one whose name is holy 
and dwell with us. If the worst thing in the world is is to have God turn His face from us, like it says in verse 17, He turns His face away from them in anger, then the best thing in the world is for God to condescend, to dwell with us. So here's the way I sum up this truth. The lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and humble saints. The lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and humble saints. Can't think of a more sweet truth in the world. Let's meditate on it for a minute. There are three things I want to say about this truth and then tell you a story to illustrate the three truths. The three things about this truth are these. One, it is surprising. It is surprising that the lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and humble saints. Two, it is not compromising. It is not compromising that the lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and humble saints. And three, it is healing. It is healing that the lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and humble saints. And now a story to illustrate those three things about this truth. Once upon a time, there was a land where the people were ruled by a king who was so wise and so powerful and so uncompromising a king that they could not go near him. He was unapproachable. At least the way the people felt about him now, he was unapproachable. His palace was high in the white mountain and his throne in the palace was lofty, very lofty. Huge winged creatures surrounded the mountain and the palace itself seemed to float on a cloud of fire. The people of the land resented the authority of this king. They did not like it. They had no respect for his power or his wisdom. Hadn't always been this way. Back in the earliest days, the first people of the kingdom knew. In fact, they were just amazed that with all his authority, all his power, all his wisdom, all his riches, he just seemed to spend it all doing good for the, for the people. It seemed as if he just exalted himself to show kindness. And for a season, it was the best of all possible worlds. But for some strange and dark and inexplicable reason, the people began to resent it that he was exalted. It didn't matter anymore that the laws were good laws. What started to matter was that they were laws. And the people didn't like it anymore. Didn't want anybody telling them what to do. And things started to go very, very bad. And then something very expected happened. Unexpected. A rumor fled through the village, the most rebellious village in the land. The rumor was that the king had left his throne with his armor, with his people, and had passed through the cloud of fire and the big beasts and was coming down the valley of shades 
And that evening, in fact, he appeared on the edge of town. He was sitting upon his great horse. He was wearing his royal blue cape. His eyes were ablaze and a host of white mountain warriors disappeared into the distance stretching up the valley. And the townspeople knew that with one command their heads would roll. They cringed and sneered and trembled. And the king gave no command. He got off his horse and he walked down one of the side streets as though he knew this town like the back of his hand. And he stopped at the house of an old widow and knocked. And uh, she opened the door. And when she saw him, her mouth fell open and she began to cry. And the king went in and shut the door and they spoke until late in the evening And she fed him supper and she gave him a straw mattress to lie down on. And in the morning, he was gone. And on her table was a little velvet box. After the king had gone, the people of the village were amazed. Why had he come? Why had he gone to dwell with a woman like this? Her husband had had been killed in trying to erect the great tower of rebellion in the city. She herself had once been part of the old prostitution religion that the king himself hated. And after her husband had died, she had participated as a volunteer in the resistance movement. And only recently had she stopped coming to these protest assemblies. But the king had gone to her house and dwelt with her. Why? This was surprising. This was very surprising. It is surprising that the lofty one whose name is holy dwells with crushed and lowly saints, even old conspirators. Well, surprising, yes, but not compromising. Some time ago, this old woman had been at the library of the town. A woman who had with all her heart resisted the authority of the king and flaunted her rebellion. She had turned up in the archives of the library a copy of the king's edicts. And she had taken it home and begun to read. And as she read, she began to weep. And for days and days she read and wept and wept and wept. She began reading then comfortably on her chair, but she finished reading them on the floor, bent over, trembling, crying. The edicts of the king were good. His plans and his purposes for the land were glorious and sure. She saw and felt for the first time that real freedom and real fulfillment didn't come by exerting her little plan against his, but by letting herself be found in his plan. She was crushed. She was humbled. And from that day on, she said she would be the king's if he would have her. And so when the king entered her house... He didn't enter the house of a rebel. He entered the house of brokenness and contrition because here was a woman who revered the throne 
So his visit was not a compromise. It's not a compromise because the pride of his hostess had been crushed. It is not a compromise for the lofty one whose name is holy to dwell with crushed and humble saints. And now the woman sat before this little velvet box on her table. And to her it wasn't a little box at all. She was tempted to bow down before that little box. Her hand trembled. Even a visit from the king hadn't made her presumptuous as though she had some right to this little box, whatever it was. Slowly she opened the box and saw a delicate golden ring and a handwritten note from the king. And she took up the note and read to herself, With this I cancel every sin and heal now every hurt within. The one who wears the royal ring will be the daughter of the king. Shall we pray? Almighty King, unapproachable in light, infinite in glory, matchless in holiness, never beginning, never ending God, we stand in awe of this truth. We are crushed. We are humbled. We are amazed. It is beyond words. And our hearts are full of thanksgiving that we have begun to taste the presence of the lofty one whose name is holy in the midst of all our brokenness and need for healing. You are a great God. And in Jesus Christ, you have come and oh, how we love him. In his great name we pray. Amen. And now to the lofty one whose name is holy, be glory and honor and thanks forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.